Hello and welcome to Irish History Walks. My name is Patrick Walsh and I live in Ireland. Well, more specifically Wicklow. In this series of podcasts, I'll be exploring the history of Wicklow and wherever else is within driving distance and not too far away. So Dublin, Wexford, Kildare. I'll be exploring some of our lesser known history that could be hidden right on your doorstep. So without further ado, let's explore the Vartry Reservoir near Dublin. Once again, before we start, I'd like to point out that I am not a historian, so this podcast should not be used as an academic reference. Whilst I strive to make my podcasts as historically accurate as possible, the making of this podcast is as much a learning process for me as it is anybody else, so get in touch if I get anything wrong. Dublin was growing rapidly during the 1800s, and the residents of Dublin were in desperate need of clean drinking water. Unfortunately, folks were drinking water from its canals and rivers, which was proving inadequate for demand and was totally unhygienic. I grew up in Birmingham, which is chock-a-block full of canals. Apparently, Birmingham has more canals than Venice, but the canals near me were, honestly, pretty gross. Or at least, that's the impression they gave, so... God, imagine drinking from them. Yuck. In a city of tenements and slums, bad sanitation and disease were rampant. Regular outbreaks of cholera and typhus kept Dublin's hospitals and workhouses full beyond their capacities and their death toll high. Cholera had arrived in Europe in the preceding decades and the lack of fresh clean water contributed to its spread. The Great Cholera Epidemic of 1832 killed at least 50,000 people in Ireland, which is insane. That's like the population of Bray and Greystones combined. Just a warning, if anybody is eating or preparing food whilst listening to this podcast, you might want to pause now. Cholera is a waterborne disease, and typical symptoms include stomach cramps, diarrhoea, vomiting, severe pain in the limbs, and dehydration. If left untreated, Cholera can result in death, sometimes within hours of the first symptoms. Which seems incredible, I know, but hey, I'm not a doctor, so who am I to argue? It's an indiscriminate disease, which doesn't just affect the poor. Ireland provided a fertile ground for the spread of the fever. The physical condition of the nation, both rural and urban, was generally poor, following the severe typhus epidemic of 1870 and 1818, and the famine of 1821-1822. Learning more about cholera, it soon becomes obvious just how important it is to have clean drinking water. Not only did the nation have cholera to contend with, but typhus, as mentioned earlier, was equally as deadly. The typhus fever epidemic in the early 19th century, between 1816 and 19, infected perhaps 1.5 million people and killed about 65,000, according to estimates, with the greatest mortality rate recorded in the summer of 1817. In reality, it was probably rampant before that, but the gravity of the situation wasn't fully appreciated until it began to affect the higher classes. Typhus fever is transmitted by lice and a few other creepy crawlies. Symptoms include headaches, chills, fever, coughing, and severe muscular pain, along with dark spots on the body after a number of days. Poor hygiene contributes massively to its spread, 
And you can understand how that would happen when you have a lack of clean water to bathe in, especially in urban areas. Before I start talking about the construction and the mechanics behind the Vartri Reservoir and the wonderful trip that I had exploring it and the surrounding area, I have to talk about Sir John Gray. Born in Clare Morris County Mayo in 1816, John Gray graduated in medicine from Glasgow University in 1839. Settling in Dublin, he turned to journalism, frequently contributing to newspapers whilst practicing medicine. Gray owns the largest newspaper in the country, the Freeman's Journal, and was elected to the Dublin City Council. The significant achievement of Sir John Gray's career as a politician was his campaign for the introduction of clean water to the city of Dublin, the Vartry Scheme. The Vartry Reservoir Scheme involved the partial redirection and damming of the Vartry River in County Wicklow, creating a man-made reservoir, an adjacent water treatment plant and the necessary pipework to carry fresh water to the city. The scheme was implemented in 1863 and he was knighted for his good work. Today he is commemorated with a bust at Vartry and with a statue on O'Connell Street, so fair play. Completed in 1868, the Vartry Reservoir provided clean drinking water to over 200,000 people in the South Dublin and North Wicklow area, helping to reduce disease massively. Wow, how important is that? Today, we expect to have access to clean drinking water. In fact, in the society that we live in, we consider it a basic human right. Between 1862 and 1868, the Lower Vartry Reservoir near Roundwood was formed by constructing a dam across the valley. The original, or lower reservoir, has a capacity of 11.3 million litres and a maximum depth of 18.3 metres. The Vartry Reservoir was an ambitious project at the time and was a huge engineering challenge. The site was chosen on the recommendation of a royal commission who advised that, although it was an expensive option, it was the best choice to provide Dublin with water. I'm not quite sure what other options there were to provide Dublin with clean drinking water other than building a reservoir. Aqueducts, perhaps? I'm not sure. The dam was constructed using manual labour between 1862 and 1864 and must have involved a huge number of workers. The dam itself is made of earth, built up by compacting layer after layer of soil using the strongest materials to form an inner core. So in the case of the Vartry Dam, it's clay, remoulded into a putty-like consistency by trampling on it and cutting it with a spade. Once the main body of the dam was built, a facing of crushed stone was added, which prevents erosion by wind or rain. Earthen dams lack strength compared to the concrete dams of today, however they are significantly cheaper and more environmentally friendly, so thumbs up. Look, at the end of the day, the Vartry Dam Embankment is completely fit for purpose, so who cares? As Dublin continued to grow, the decision was made to create a second reservoir completed in 1923. I guess the original lake just wasn't big enough. You can walk across the dam. Um, you don't really have the feeling of being high up, although there is quite a steep embankment on one side. I have to say, when visiting, it does act as a reminder as to just how much water it's having to hold back. <laughs> a bit scary being made of earth, 
It almost feels like it shouldn't be. God, imagine if it burst. Looking out across the lake is an impressive spectacle. You can see the sugar loaf in the distance to the north of the lake, living up to its name, of course. A distinctive cone-shaped mountain with bare granite on top. It looks like it's been dusted with sugar sprinkles. I noticed a dark line across the lake under the water, and for the life of me, I couldn't work out what it was. I stood there for some time and it got me thinking. Obviously the valley was flooded to create the reservoir. I wonder what it looked like beforehand. Was anything left behind? I wonder what lies beneath its murky waters. Ruins, farm machinery, hopefully no skeletons. <laughs> when constructing the second dam, advances in technology meant that machines were used to carry out much of the work. But large number of workers were still required and they were housed in temporary accommodation near the second dam, which became known locally as Tin Town. I imagine much of the housing was constructed from corrugated iron or tin, as many of us call it in Ireland. One of the unique features of both reservoirs are the draw-off towers, situated about 30 metres in front of the two dams respectively. Draw-off towers are intake towers specialised for drinking water reservoirs. They have multiple openings at various depths and are typically equipped with valves, which draw water only from the level where it is of the highest quality. Both towers are built in a kind of neo-Gothic style and have crenellated parapets, making them look like small castles. The upper reservoir tower even has false arrow slits, which I found highly amusing. I wasn't expecting that. I guess I didn't notice looking at the photos until I actually saw them in person. I have to say though, I do think it's cool the amount of thought that went into the aesthetics of a small functional outbuilding. It really does paint an amazing portrait of a bygone era, whether you like the style of them or not. The upper tower connects the upper reservoir to the lower, flowing through a head building constructed in the same neo-gothic style. It's gated off, but you can walk in slightly and look down through a gaping manhole. The room is lined with white glazed tiles, reminiscent of the London Underground. The building and its tiles amplify the noise of the water rushing through, creating an almighty roar bellowing out of the square manhole, that ominous black void in the ground. I actually found it a bit disturbing. It sounds like a torrent, but when you back out and look over the wall to the river below, it's actually flowing out of two tunnels quite gently. I'm guessing the reason the head building exists at all is to take the sting out of the torrent so it doesn't wash the riverbed away. Surrounding the head building is woodland. The ground has a, a sort of dank feel to it. Well, maybe dank isn't the right word. There was nothing unpleasant about the ground as such, but there were mushrooms everywhere, and not particularly pretty mushrooms either. Huge white things. It wasn't obvious what they were even. At first I thought it was simply litter, paper or white cardboard thrown on the ground. They had a kind of shapeless look to them. The dampness could be natural seepage from the dam. It hadn't been raining at the time, not for several days, it was very hot in fact. Nearly all dams, however, water passes either through or under them to some extent if they were made of concrete, for example. The lakes provide a wonderful habitat for a wide variety of birds. 
woodpeckers, herons and cormorants for example. I tried taking a photo of a particularly bold robin that landed just a few metres from me but he was too quick. There are also multiple trails to walk around both lakes as well as a story trail for children, the snow beast apparently based on a children's book. The lower lake dam doesn't make for as nice a walk. You end up having to walk along a main road and it's really tricky parking down there. I ended up parking next to the entrance to the water treatment plant which is cool but doesn't exactly contribute to the aesthetics of the lake if you know what I mean or the valley. Opposite the water treatment plant is the lower draw-off tower. When I visited there was a huge cormorant perched on one of its parapets. With its wings tucked in it genuinely looked like a huge penguin. <laughs> Unfortunately on the day I couldn't get very close to the plant. I had to remain content with just taking a few photos from a distance. I guess that's fair enough considering just how vital a facility it is. I don't suppose the council want me snooping around taking pictures. How does the water treatment plant provide us with clean water? So, right, <laughs> I'll try and keep it short and sweet. So, drum roll please. <laughs> Water is drawn from the lake via the draw-off towers as previously mentioned. It's piped under the dam to a turbine where electricity is generated. This is used to power a clarifier, a circular pond in other words, with a rotating skimmer on top, which is used to remove floating scum. Mm. <laughs> Other matter settles at the bottom of the pool and is removed as sludge. The water leaves the clarifier via feeder canals and enters a series of sand beds. At Vartry they kind of look like big swimming pools. As the water passes through a whole load of sand, it is physically and biologically purified, although obviously not enough, because it then flows through a mechanical building which, strangely enough, looked like a small church. Here chlorine is added to kill off any remaining bacteria. Fluoride is added to protect your teeth and lime in order to alter the pH level of the water. I think the water at Vartry must be quite acidic. Finally it is stored in a covered reservoir to protect it from any contaminants and that's it. One thing that I do think is really cool though which is worth mentioning, or at least in my opinion, there is an underground 4 km long tunnel chiselled by hand through hard dense rock which is used to carry treated water from the treatment plant, I assume, to a covered pool at Carrow Hill. This tunnel was used for at least 150 years. However, because it's an unlined tunnel and not a pipe, it has gradually eroded over time and is now at risk of collapse. It has been replaced by a modern pipeline recently in fact. Somehow the thought of an underground tunnel really caught my imagination, even though obviously you can't see it. Maybe it's the result of previous podcasts I've made about mining, Perhaps I'm addicted to mining now or I've got tunnels on the brain. There are lots of nice walks around the Vartry Lakes. The upper lake walk I did on the day was well worth the trip. It's quite a long walk, a couple of hours at least, and that's if you really crack on and don't stop anywhere, which of course you're going to do. At first, as I left the car park, honestly I was a little disappointed. You couldn't see the lake at all from the path, it was just a walk through forestry which... With all due respect, if you live in Wicklow, 
you can do just about anywhere. But as I reached the northern side of the lake, the path opened out sort of, and there was lots to see. Finally the lake, and loads of grasses, reed beds, and there were nice rushes in places, so the lake can't have been very deep here. There are also these small pink flowers growing on the surface of the lake. Uh, they weren't water lilies, and for the life of me, I haven't been able to find out what they were. The whole area had an unspoilt feel to it. It didn't feel managed in any way, allowing my imagination to run wild. Besides the flora, there was wildlife to be seen too. A heron chilling out by the lakeside, keeping an eye out for any fish I expect. You dip in and out of the trees that come right down to the water's edge. Where the trees thin out, you can come right down to the lake edge. It's very peaceful. The sound of the water gently lapping against the shore, I should have recorded it. It would have been very therapeutic whilst trying to get to sleep. That brings to an end my third podcast. This podcast was produced and edited by me, Patrick Walsh. I also provided the musical score, took care of mixing and so on. But shout out to Pixabay Sounds and Sound Bible, Mike Koenig and so on, for all the stock sound effects. Take care now and enjoy the new year. <laughs>